Keepers of the Flame, the classic metal podcast with Rev Taylor and Darren Wall. Reviews, interviews, and conversation since 2021. Hello once again and welcome back to another episode of Keepers of the Flame, the heavy metal podcast. This is our second episode of season two. As promised, we are keeping up with some consistency this year, or at least attempting to as much as we can. Um, we are coming to you taped uh, today from uh, uh, sunny Seattle. It's a Sunday, almost afternoon. It's about noon. So I don't know. It's noon somewhere. So I'm cracking a beverage of my choice, which is a Victoria Mexican lager that was left behind at the house by uh, <laughs> my kind bandmates on a, on a Friday night uh, that we took off for practicing and decided to have some fun. Um, my name is Darren Wall. With me, as always, my awesome co-host, Mr. Ref Taylor. How are you, brother? I'm doing well. Uh, it's still technically before noon, so my beverage of choice today is a uh, rudimentary Irish coffee with some French press Cafe Bustelo uh, and some Jameson. So, I don't know, when Ireland and Mexico get together, it's always a good time. <laughs> yeah, I imagine, I imagine that would be a good party. I was I watched you fill that French press up when we fired up the podcast, and I got a little bit jealous. But anyway, we are cruising along here into season two. Um, lots going on in the world of metal these days. Um, this year has gotten off to a really fast start with new releases and news and things happening. Um, it seems like you know we're kind of bouncing back from how slow things have been in the last couple of years, which is really cool. Um, Shameless plug, we have an EP coming out this week. Our EP called Call the Hawk is coming out on Wednesday. We will not be reviewing it on the podcast because that would be silly. But if you, <laughs> want, if you want to hear it, it'll be out for digital download um, on the 8th. You can pre-order it now on our Bandcamp. Um, physical product in the form of CDs will be coming. Um, as far as vinyl goes, your guess is as good as mine. Um, vinyl is scarce these days and hard to come by as far as making new albums. Everything's backed up, so we'll just have to see. Um, but we do have an awesome new album to review this week. At least I think it's pretty awesome. Spoiler alert. Um, and we will get into that in a little bit. But, uh, you know, there's some also some interesting things that's been going on in the, in the world of heavy metal. We always are scouring the internet and such for new releases. And much to my surprise, I came across a new release of sorts from our buddy, <laughs> Uh, Mr. QAnon Colonel Sanders himself, Mr. John Schaefer, who, whose, you know, descent into weirdness continues into the, a year after his infamous appearance at the, um, in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And on January 7th, 2022, he released something called a narrative soundscape. And I was like, huh. I mean, the, first of all, the, the album cover is hilariously put together, um, well, it looks like it's, I don't know what it is, but it looks really, it, it's really funny. Um, and I'm like, oh, wow, did he write a new album while he was locked up? Um, did he really have some new music? But no, these are old Ice Earth songs that he has rearranged into acoustic arrangements or piano arrangements, and he talks the lyrics over it. Um, this doesn't seem healthy to me. <laughs> It's <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind. I just, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's the best he needs money and it's the best thing he could come up with to sell some, 
music to the people he still has, you know, in his corner. I don't know, but I'm concerned about this guy, man. Like, you know, I don't know that his mental health is doing so good. And I don't imagine that it would. I mean, he's had a hard year, whether it's his fault or his own doing or not. I mean, he's definitely ha- had a tough year. And this kind of feels like the culmination of it to me. Yeah, I mean, it seems a little odd to me that something like this would be under the iced earth name. Yeah. You know, because if you imagine, if you're, if you're a, someone who doesn't know iced earth and you're thinking, oh, like, someone told me I really like this band, iced earth, and you don't know which album to look for, you pick this one up. You know, it just seems like if you're putting the band's name on it, you should be able to, like, it should go with everything else in the band's catalog, whereas this is clearly a whole different interpretation. It's, I just, like, imagine, imagine another band doing the same thing. Oh, there's a new Metallica album, but it's just, like, I don't know, it's just, like, some keyboard strings and James Hetfield, like, doing a dramatic reading of the lyrics to Trapped Under Ice. (laughs) <laughs> and now, now I would buy it if it was Lar- if it was Lars Ulrich talking about it, like trap under ice, huh? Like if it was him talking in that funny Danish voice he has, I would buy it because that would be some amazing comedy. And you know, Metallica have been known for unintentional comedy in recent decades. But yeah, this is just uh, the latest in this very very bizarre saga. What is turning out to be a very very bizarre human being, um, you know. I hope he's okay. You know, like, I don't, as much as I don't approve of any of the antics that went down on the 6th of January myself, like, I mean, not like, I still, you still wish the best for this guy. And, you know, I hope that he can get his life together, get on track in in some regard, but this doesn't (laughs) show any indication that he's doing that at all. So, I mean, I'm not suggesting anyone go and give this the time of day because it's a giant piece of crap. But um, if you want to laugh, um, just go look up a narrative soundscape by Ice Earth, and you'll probably last about, I think I lasted about 15 seconds in each song because they're all songs I knew when I had, like the, the one for Dante's Inferno just made me absolutely howl. It was, it was really funny. It's not inherently listenable or good, but it is worth uh, uh, checking out for morbid curiosity and for a quick chuckle. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's not super familiar with the Ice Earth discography like this is just a complete you know it's just completely bizarre to me <laughs> like it, there's not really much context for me to appreciate something like this it's just like it's, it's a bunch it's of just, it's just yeah it's soundscapes weird. and then it's, like a guy reading the lyrics i mean it's it's you might as well like you know listen to a william shatner album as far as i'm concerned yeah i honestly the william shatner album at least he's trying to be funny right you know? like i don't think that mr schaefer is trying to be funny here it's just it's a, it's a sad end to what, well, honestly, it was a, a pretty amazing musical legacy. But, you know, there's, there's, there's time. There's, he's not that old. There's time for redemption. And who knows, maybe he can pull it together in some way, shape, or form. You put out, and, like, a, a prison album people actually want to hear, like, Bruzen or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I don't want to give that any more time of day than it needs. But it just I wanted to kind of put it out there because it was very funny to me. And speaking of funny, you, 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 saw, you read some... Uh, funny rock and roll drama over the past week, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's probably, you know, just media whipped up nonsense, but there's like a little beef that seems to be forming between Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam and uh, Nikki Six. Uh, because in some interview, Eddie Vedder said, man, like, Motley Crue, fuck you. I hated that shit. And then, uh, and then Nikki Six is 
you know, said, oh, that's funny, coming from, like, one of the most boring bands on the face of the earth. And there was one particular, oh, man, I, I can't seem to find the actual thing, but somebody, like, tweeted, oh, here we go, someone tweeted in response and said, my best friend is about to have a baby, I'll recommend Pearl Jam songs to put the baby to sleep, ha, ha, ha. And Nikki Six replied, or just sing to the baby with marbles in your mouth. Very zen. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good oh, burn. Oh, man. I mean... <laughs> You know, you, you, you see these things once in a while. These things pop up every once in a while. The funniest one to me was Chris Jericho and Sebastian Bach. <laughs> we were, were going at it for a while where Jericho was saying that he's such a good singer, which he's not. He's one of the worst singers I ever heard. And, you know, Sebastian Bach was saying, whatever, man, you sing the backing tracks. And they had this whole Twitter beef going on. And, you know, I'm sure some of it is a work, you know, like some of it is like a way for them to, you know, kind of sell records or whatever. But, I mean, I guess maybe part of that is just what social media has allowed because you got a lot of like, you know, aging rock stars who were probably up too late drinking a little too much and have access to the internet. I know I've written some stuff on the internet that I've regretted at three in the morning before. And I can't, you know, so I think that might be what some of this is, but either way, it's absolutely hysterical to me. We could bring back a celebrity death boxing type thing and, you know, have an event like before a concert where like Nikki Six and Eddie Vedder put on boxing gloves and headgear <laughs> just punch it out. I would watch that. I would watch that any day of the week and I'd pay money for it. So the other thing Nikki Six said that I'm not sure if I get the reference. He said there are, what he said he said there's a, there are like a millions of bands by brown haired people for brown haired people. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I don't know what that means right? either. I got brown hair so I don't know what that means. But uh, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny sounding anyway. Um, I think it's just his way of saying it's kind of bland. and. Yeah, I guess. Which, yeah, whatever. I don't really have, I don't, I mean, there's two bands that I don't really have strong opinions about, really. Like, you know, two bands that I kind of, you know, I respect them in their own way for what they did. I mean, mm -hmm. I do really enjoy the first couple Motley Crue albums and a few cuts from the later stuff. Um, and Pearl Jam, always a band that I kind of respected but never really listened to, so whatever they could they well, find, I still think they should fight it out yeah <laughs> it's one of the great things about rock and roll though is that there's like so many different ways to approach it you can have these diametrically opposed kind of approaches whether you're going to do the over the top excess glam kind of thing or whether you're going to like I don't know put on some you know old clothes from your dad's closet and go mumble you know either way <laughs> and people are going to find someone to enjoy it so that's great yeah, either way, either way is good. Um, it's it, it, either way, it's funny to me. Uh, they could be on the same card as the guy from Keep It True fighting that Polish band. So right. <laughs> maybe that's one thing we could do as as we go along here with this podcast. We can compile like a a WrestleMania card, so to speak, of uh, the rock and metal world of who's 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 beefing with who, and we can build like a you know a really good good uh, fight fighting event from it. You know. Yeah, you know, I, I never never thought I'd be a fight promoter, but. Uh... Yeah, hey, we, could, you know. we have like the, the keepers of the flame, uh, you know, Rockamania, brother, this <laughs> Sunday. Uh, I mean, we'll I, so we got yeah, so we'll uh, we'll, fit, we'll 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 see how that evolves as the year goes as the year goes out. But anyway, getting into uh, some music here, we are going to start start off with our picks of the week, and I will go first. Uh, my pick of the week is one of my favorites in my vinyl collection. Um, it is "Endless Skies" by Ashbury. Oh yeah. This is a band that I discovered not long ago. Um, I discovered them at Frost and Fire Festival um, when I was playing 
uh, there with Skeletor. Um, I had no idea who the heck they were. Um, I always thought it was like Ian Asprey from a cult. <laughs> I was like, is that his solo band or something? But it's spelled differently. Uh, and turns out that it was a, it was a really cool, um, really unique band that has much more of like a Jethro Tull, uh, Blue Oyster Cult, um, Pentagram, 70s uh, uh, kind of prog rock meets metal meets acoustic folk rock vibe. Just and all done with really, really good songwriting, catchy riffs, catchy vocal melodies, and amazing vocal harmonies, too. And some serious shredding. I mean, there's some great guitar work on this record. Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar with Ashbury, like which I wasn't, and I think most of the world wasn't until the recent age of the internet, um, this band uh, started in the late 70s. Um, they released this album, And the Skies, in 83. And this is kind of like their seminal record. I think they only have two or three records in their whole catalog. I haven't heard much off the other ones, but this is kind of the one everyone talks about. Um, this one I have is not an original pressing. Um, this is re was re-released in 2016 by High Roller Records, who do a lot of cool re-releases. But the kind of story of these guys are from Tucson, Arizona. Um, the band, the two kind of driving forces, their brothers, Randy Davis, Rob Davis, um, you know, they were kind of, um, they were just kind of playing around their local scene in the early 80s and they recorded this album and they were shopping it around. Apparently they got a, they got an offer from a major uh, American label. I think it was Poly Records or something like that. Um, and, but the, the, the label wanted to drive them more in an acoustic rock direction. They wanted to get rid of like all the heaviness, all the progginess, and they kind of wanted them to be, do more of like an acoustic singer songwriter, folk music kind of thing. Uh, the band didn't really want to do that, so they just kind of said no to the offer, um, and they went ahead and released this themselves. Um, they got just they got. I think the I read that the first uh, pressing of this was a thousand copies, so there are only a thousand copies. Probably some of them are gone. I mean, so there's probably less than a thousand copies of that original pressing that exists, and they probably cost a fortune. Um, but. So they, um, they released it with some distribution in uh, Tower Records and such like that, but it was all done themselves. They had a real small budget um, and they kind of just played around locally in their area in the southwestern part of the United States, played a little bit in Europe, and then they kind of just vanished. Um, and they kind of had a resurgence in later years. These are, this is one of those bands from the 80s that really got a resurgence by people finding them um, either on metal archives or on you know, clips on YouTube or, you know, people just kind of upload some of these obscure bands once, once in a while and people really start taking to them. So I think they are probably even more well-known and successful now than they were in their heyday. Uh, but this is a great uh, I distinctly remember um, hanging out with you guys at the, at the, at the cabin over at Bremerton. And it's really late. It was really late. And, you know, we were all, you know, imbibing in various, you know, fun substances and we're having fun out on the deck and, there's a neighbor came out and said like, hey, and we were blasting this record. And then said, and she, said yeah. and she said, can you turn it up? It's really good. I really want to hear more of this. And we said, all right, we'll turn it up for you. Uh, which is, you know, that's a, that's a statement about how good this record is. Um, my favorite tracks on this one are Vengeance. Vengeance is the first one I heard and it's probably the heaviest one on the record. It's got a, I don't know, a Sabbath-y pentagram kind of vibe to it. It's a really driving song. Madman is my absolute favorite one on this album. I love the lyrics. Um, I love the, how it has like the, like the acoustic passage to start and then it kind of picks up. Um, 
That was the one we were listening to when they uh, yeah. when they asked us to turn it up. Yeah. Yeah. Hard fights, another great one. Real slow. Uh, End of the skies. The title track is great. The warning kicks it off. That's another one. This is a this is a ten out of ten, front to back. Awesome listen. It might not be your thing if you're listening to this and you you know kind of like a lot of the stuff that we traditionally talk about, like the straight up banger, like eighties metal. That's not what you're gonna get here. You're gonna get more of a seventies proggy. Jethro Tull, Blue Oyster Cult kind of vibe. But I highly recommend it. You know, it's a cornerstone of my vinyl collection. It gets spun all the time. And yeah, this is one of, one of the best bands I've discovered in the past 10 years. So Aspery and the Skies, go get it if you don't got it. Yeah, man. It's like, it's, I think of that as like one of the best 70s rock albums that no one's heard since 100%. it came out in the early 80s. And like, I think it was a little late to ride the wave when that was popular. But now people, you know, with a little bit more of an objective perspective, just want to hear music and, you know, any particular style that sounds great. They don't really care when it was made. So, yeah, it's a, it's just an awesome record. And one way I kind of, when I first listened to it, I was like, this sounds like if Tenacious D was serious and a really yeah. good band, <laughs> that's what Ashbury sounds like. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I never thought about the timing thing until now. You're, you're, you're absolutely right about that, though. I mean, this hits when thrash is 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 in its speed metal and thrash is having its birth you know the new wave of british heavy metal has come along and you know and hair metal's popping up like people were definitely looking for things that were more intense and bombastic and driving and 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 more a little more high energy than this so to speak if this came out in 76 77 it probably would have had a bigger impact Mm -hmm. all right man what you got well i've got an album that actually I think fits reasonably well with some of the sonic aspects of that one. Um, this is a game-changing, life-changing album for me, one probably most of the people listening have at least heard of, if you're into the metal scene at all, but this is 2001's Blackwater Park by nice. Opeth. Very nice. Um, and this is the album that really, you know, opened my brain up to a whole new world of music. I, I was kind of into, like, Radio Rock, uh, when I was, you know, 12 at the time, uh, so mostly new metal and stuff, but I had gotten into a little bit of prog kind of stuff, because uh, um, my, I think I mentioned, like, maybe last week, there's that, or no, during our top 10 list, I mentioned um, the band Maudlin of the Well, one of my, my friends gave me uh, a copy of their double album. That was a really experimental, interesting record, and that opened my mind a lot. So I was kind of ready to hear something more interesting. And then my dad, his favorite band when he was a kid was Camel, the 70s British prog band. I I know I've talked about on the show before because I'm a big fan of theirs too. And he said, hey, I've been hearing about this band that apparently is like a death metal band influenced by Camel. Don't know how that works, but check it out if you get the chance. So I listened to this album and was like... uh, I... This is the 20th anniversary edition I have here on vinyl. Bought it pretty recently. Last 20 year. years. Oh, my God. Yep. <laughs> I saw this tour, so I yeah. can't believe that was 20 <laughs> years ago. Wow. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, time flies. Um, and uh, where was I on that? Anyway, yeah, I, I think I saw one article recently that described this as Simon and Garfunkel meets Morbid Angel, which was actually fairly accurate because we've got this... It's got these acoustic folk influenced aspects, and it's got death metal with some of, in my opinion, the best harsh vocals ever recorded. Um, 
this album produced by Stephen Wilson of Porcupine Tree. Um, probably from a production standpoint, the best Opeth record. It's arguable, but uh, the album before this, Still Life, and the album after it, Deliverance, both have a little bit of muddiness to them. Whereas this one is really crisp and just hits all the right notes. The acoustic guitars sound so present, but at the same time, the guitars have the crunch. The harsh vocals just really sound like they're there with you in the room. Um, it's, it's just a gorgeous album. It's got this really distinctively British vibe um, for a Swedish band. <laughs> I think some of that's the Stephen Wilson influence. Um, it definitely feels like something that's, that's you know very much related to that 70s British prog sound that also influenced a band like Ashbury. Um, and then the death metal on it is not, you know, despite being compared with Morbid Angel, this is not blast beats and, you know, dive bombs kind of death metal. This is a more kind of elegant, uh, harmonically rich, slower style of death metal uh, mixed in with those folk and prog elements. And it just is just gorgeous. There's nothing quite like this. It's absolutely a top three all-time album for me. Um, you know, just drop the needle on it, I think. First track, The Leper Affinity, has this just really interesting 6-8 hook. Gets into the acoustic section about two-thirds of the way through, and it just sounds just achingly beautiful. Uh, comes back to the main riff. That was the first song where I was like, holy shit, what just happened? This is a band that does 10-minute songs on the regular and just kind of makes that their game plan. So these songs don't really feel as like... I get the sense of if you listen to a, a band that does 4-minute songs and they put a 10-minute song on the record, a lot of the time that feels like a bit of a slog to me because it's out of step with what the rest of the songs are doing. But for this, they just kind of establish a new paradigm where it's like, okay, the songs on this album are going to be nine, ten minutes long. And then there's some shorter ones that have, you know, for example, the song Harvest is just a purely acoustic folk song. Or Patterns in the Ivy, which is like an interlude with piano and guitar. Um, but the real meaty songs are all nine to ten minutes long, but they're constructed in a way that really makes that work. And if you listen to the whole album, at least for me, you kind of forget that it's as long as it is because they really keep you guessing while maintaining a flow. It's a really, uh, it's just a hard balance to hit, and depending what your level of fandom is for Opeth, um, I love everything they ever did, but I think, you know, there are those who kind of would say they probably never quite got that balance as right as they did on this record. And um, I think that's probably a valid point of view, even though, as I say, I like every Opeth album, but it's it's hard to argue with the fact that objectively this is the best one. So there's a good chance people out there uh, listening have heard this one, if you know Opeth at all. If you don't, just listen to the album. Even if you think you don't like death metal, just give it a spin and see what happens, because it's just not really anything else that's like it. It's influenced a lot. There's stuff that's come after that has aspects of this sound, but there's just nothing quite like this album. Um, again, this is the 20th anniversary reissue. Brings up a couple issues for, like, uh, vinyl presentation. It's got colored vinyl, but it's, like, gray. And this just makes me think, like, I don't know. I guess it's supposed to be silver. I really love the, like, translucent vinyl. It's, like, red or orange or something, and it glows, kind of. But if it's gray, I'm just kind of feeling, like, nothing against gray as a color. It's a great color, but, like, 
This probably could have just been black. Just saying. And the other thing that kind of bugs me about it is they put a live version of the first track to fill out the last. It's a four disc, uh, four disc package. And side D, instead of just putting the closing track Blackwater Park on it, they put a live version of the Leper Affinity, the first track on it. And that's the kind of thing that just really sticks in my craw a little bit. I understand why they did it. The live version's great, sounds great. No complaints there. It's just like, I want the last track to be the last track. And especially with the vinyl, like, maybe I want to put this album on when I'm in the bathtub or something, you know? I'm going to put that last track on, and I want that acoustic guitar arpeggio that ends the album, that fades away. I want that to fade away, and I want to just sit there and think about it and feel it. And it just bonus tracks... Ah, it's such a it's such a tricky thing because every now and then you get bonus tracks that are really the best material on the record. You know, you I love hate, them. They I become live, part of it. But like, I hate live bonus tracks. It's stupid. And also, like modern live uh, things aren't mastered for vinyl. It's not great. And live tracks, mm-hmm. modern live tracks, don't sound great on vinyl ever. Like I love seventies live albums, like Unleashed in the East or, or you know Live and Dangerous, things like that. I love those ones on vinyl, but. I don't need to hear like a modern band's live album on vinyl. Like it's just all, all the software they're recording through all the, all the equipment that coming through the soundboard is all digital. Now, you know, put it out on DVD, put, put it out as a, on the internet, put it out on CD, whatever. But it, to me, like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to go buy a new modern live recording on vinyl and these live bonus tracks, unless it's like a really different take on the song, you know, like if it's a reimagined, Kind of like that real acoustic version of Diamonds and Rust that, that Judas Priest will do, which is actually yeah. more akin to like the original than mm-hmm. their original take on it. Things like that. If you want to put something like that on there, that's way different. But yeah, if it's just a live recording of one of the tracks that you heard, heard earlier, like who cares? So you don't need to put that on there. Just have them, just end it early. Just, now, yeah. there could be something with pressing the vinyl that's an issue like from a technical standpoint in order to get it to play properly. I know that that is tricky. Um, so there might be a reason they need to do it from a technical perspective that I'm not aware of. But I do know that actually pressing the vinyl and getting the ridges all in the right place is actually quite an art form. And there's a lot of factors that influence um, how good a record will sound. So I don't know if it's something to do with that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, around this time, Opeth released a like, seven-inch single that had two acoustic songs, mostly just... Michael Ockerfeld and his guitar singing. Um, yeah, I've heard those. Yeah, lovely songs. And that actually might have been a nice thing. Put that at the end of it. for the Yeah, tournament. I agree. They, that would have fallen out the side. Yeah. And it would have better. The flow yeah. would have worked. And it, it makes me sad. And that I, I don't want to just complain about this the whole time because this is like one of my favorite albums ever. But it just it's one of those things that kind of just bugs me a bit because the last track on this album is one of the most epic metal songs ever made. The title track, Blackwater Park. And... It's a really hard act to follow, and you want you, you want to sit with that because it's mm-hmm. just like it's some of the best riffs I've ever heard are on this track, and just the flow of it, the emotion of it, it just it really can't be beat. I mean, if you hear several epic classic tracks on this album, especially on the front side of it, but if you hear just one song from this, if you want to just kind of get a little sense of the flavor of Opeth, probably listen to the title track because it's the biggest meatiest uh with some of the nastiest riffs you're starting to get a little bit of um a little bit more of like a bluesy kind of uh 
snarl to it that they started to explore in their later albums. But, again, some of just the tastiest riffs I've ever heard on that track. So, yeah, the title track, Blackwater Park, would be a great place to start. Or just drop the needle on the whole thing and uh, thank me later. So that's Blackwater Park. Uh, thanks again to Opeth for changing my life. I wouldn't be here talking about all this other music that worked for them and this record. Awesome. All right, well, there you go. There's our picks of the week for this episode. A um, couple of really cool, different, you know, a little bit different for what we usually talk about um, uh, on this podcast. But hey, both albums you should definitely try to get in your collection. Um, all right, so now we are going to move on to our featured album of the week. Um, and I think it's, I don't know if it's the first time we've done, no, maybe it's not. But anyway, this time we have a band from north of the border in Canada. This is the debut full length from Mall. Um, not, and not like a shopping mall, like the weapon, or like to like attack somebody like, you know, really hard, M-A-U-L-E, Mall. <laughs> so be just to clear things up uh, for people who may be listening. Um, so this is, a, this is a brand new band. They formed in 2017 um, in a place that I pretty much consider my hometown, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Um, I spent most of my life there. So it's really cool to review for me what I would call a hometown band. Um, and I have to give a full disclaimer here that there is some bias on my part because um, I am really, really good friends with the drummer of this band, um, Eddie Ry Ryman. Um, me and Eddie played music together for a good solid eight, nine years. Um, he was a drummer in my old thrash band, Entropia. He was also a drummer in my old um, stoner rock band, 88 Mile Trip. Uh, he played with me in the Pantera tribute called Pantera, where we used to do the, I don't Van Pantera with Vantera from Vancouver, real clever, I know. But, you know, we, we did the annual Dimebag tribute together. We recorded, I think we recorded like four albums together. We toured the country, you know. So there's a little bit of bias there, but I'm going to remain objective on this one. Um, because I was, and I was a little nervous getting into it because I was like, God damn, I really hope I don't hate my buddy's record. And lucky for me, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I this this is a really, really fun album. It, it's I liked it at first, and then it's only grown on me since. And I didn't, when you initially brought this album up, you told me you had some sort of connection, but you either didn't make it clear what, what it was, or I just wasn't paying attention, uh, because I didn't know. And I, I was all ready to gush about how much I love the drums on this album. So uh, <laughs> Feel free, real free. Um, yeah. But anyway, a little bit about Mall. Um, like I said, they're formed in 2017 for Vancouver. Um, they released an EP called From Hell in 2019. And this is their debut album. Uh, the, all the songs for that EP were re-recorded and put on, on this album again. Um, and the EP was a little bit more like garagey, I would say. It was really a lot of, a lot of production. So I think that was the right move on their part. Uh, so this came out on January 14th on Gates of Hell Records, which is a sub-label of Cruise del Sur Music um, coming out of Europe. Uh, this, this album is uh, nine tracks. It comes in about 38 minutes, uh, so it's fairly short uh, for a full-length record. Um, I would say this album, one of the things that I thought it was was easily digestible. Like, this was pretty easy to take in, the first listen. Um, yeah, lots of fun, big riffs, like really epic melodies. Uh, every song is very, very catchy. There's lots of hooks. Um, the energy is, is, is really high on it. Um, if you're going to have a, if there's a criticism, I guess, is that it's a little derivative at times and 
you know, you can tell, like, there's some riff borrowing, not, not, not like blatantly, like you don't hear something go, oh, that's the riff from this song, but you're like, that really sounds like it came off Killers by Iron Maiden. So there's, there's a little, I mean, it's not super original, but honestly, who cares? Like, um, this is, we're, this is the classic metal podcast. We don't, we aren't really reviewing bands that are overly concerned with reinventing the wheel here. And Maul is clearly not. And to me, that's just fine. Yeah, this is a lean and mean album. Um, it's, it's, it's simplicity is one of its strengths. Um, I'll, I'll say that when I first listened to it, uh, we were kind of deciding what album to review. And I was kind of digging into another album we were considering. Um, and I won't mention, I won't say what it was yet because we might get around to actually reviewing this album and it deserves its own in-depth hearing. Agreed. But I was listening to an album that, that was a little bit more uh, kind of grandiose in its ambitions and a little bit more opaque in its lyrical themes and a little bit more complicated in its production. And it just was not quite clicking for me. And then I was like, well, I'll check out that mall thing. And I just felt like the simplicity and clarity of this just sliced through that. Like yeah. that, that kind of like the, the uncertainty I had about that other album, just like this just cut it in half with its clear, precise, um, great production, meaty sound, simple and aggressive songwriting. Uh, it, it kind of surprised me because I do kind of think of myself as someone who likes more ambitious, more complex, more intricate stuff. But in this particular case, this was really a breath of fresh air. I agree. Um, and let's talk about the production for a minute. Um, I agree with you that it's really good. Um, it's pretty clean and pretty crisp. Um, but it also has a warmth to it and it, it's pretty raw overall. There's not a lot of um, trickery or anything done to any of the, the, the um, albums. I actually am wondering if they um, dubbed it to analog. Like I'm wondering if they recorded, I know, I know they weren't cutting tape, but I'm wondering if they recorded it and then dumped it onto like an analog tape and then pushed it back into digital. That's a technique that um, certain bands have used in order to get that more warmer analog song sound. I've done it in the past in, in, on recordings I've, I've done and it works really well. And I kind of hear some of that here, um, but it also could just be the choice of microphones and, and whatever. Um, the bass sound is, is real old school. It's, it's, it's kind of like, it's deep, um, but it's still fairly punchy. It's not clangy. It doesn't sound like my bass. <laughs> it's not. It doesn't. It's not a, like a freight train bass sound. It's very warm and and, and warm and um, in old school. Uh, the drums sound. The drums sound very raw to me. It doesn't seem like there's much for sampling on them. Um, it just just kind of sounds like a band rocking out. You know, it sounds pretty live. It sounds great. Great energy. The guitars have a, actually have a good amount of fuzz on it, um, which I liked. Actually, it's kind of cool to hear some old school, more raw distortion. Um, I did think I, I, I was uh, a little bit confused by the artwork when I saw it. Um, I don't know that it really reflects the music that you hear uh, on the album that well. It's a cool piece, don't get me wrong, but it kind of go, it makes you think more like a, I don't know, like a doom band or something like that than, than the classic kind of sword wielding metal that you hear. Yeah, but I think part of what, what sets this apart uh, and part of what gives it its sound is that it does have a little bit of a stoner doom sensibility. It, mm -hmm. if not in, it's not in the songwriting in terms of like the production and the tone of it, 
Um, and some of the treatment of the vocals, like just, I mean, the vocals themselves aren't really in that style, but just like the way the reverb is used. And uh, in some ways, the atmosphere of it sonically does remind me of uh, like Stoner Doom stuff. And this is something you would know more about than I would because that's your scene. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really feel like I was experiencing a forum content uh, problem there because I, I actually felt like the ways the guitar sounded, you know, that fuzz you're talking about, that feeling of like you're sitting right there next to the amp and you can feel that ding -a -ding -a -ding -a, you like mm. feel it impacting you. Like that's something I really associate with Doom. Yeah, um, there's this aspects of it. I just I just thought over I was just a little bit I mean it's a cool piece, but I was just kinda like when I saw it when you see it it was the same thing kinda with the E P, you know, I was really trying to help, you know, what I when these guys came out. Because you know, because I like the the EP and because mm -hmm. my buddies in the band, I was kind of sending it out to people, and people were like, "Man, I, I looked at the cover and I didn't expect what I heard." You know, and yeah. that may not be a bad thing, and I'm not saying that they need to go and have like a you know half naked fucking woman wielding a giant broadsword like every other damn band does. <laughs> you know, but it just it just, I, and I'm not saying that I don't like the album cover. I just it, it, I just thought it was an odd choice, but you know. Would but a half-naked woman wielding a sword would also work. It's, I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna complain about that. Um, Influence-wise, if people want to hear that, I mean, the things I heard, you hear lots of lots of Iron Maiden. That's clearly this band's primary influence to my ears. Uh, lots of new wave of British heavy metal bands that go with Maiden, like Angel Witch and Saxon, and you know, Tigers and Pantang, etc. And being Canadian, like I, I actually heard a lot of Three Inches of Blood kind of mm -hmm. references. And I even heard like a little Unleash the Archers references at certain point in times. I mean, those are the two biggest metal bands from their city. So it's pretty normal to, for that to kind of creep its way in. Um, you know, there's lots of gallops and like, there's lots of like warm sounding major chords on this record that I thought was, was really cool. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the gist of kind of what, what we're dealing with here. I also feel like there's a little bit of a, of a punk or like hardcore vibe to it some of that's the vocals mm -hmm. which are just a little bit you know raw shouted kind of style but also just the straight ahead punch of it like mm -hmm. it, it i can't really comment because i don't know the like punk and hardcore scene very well so i don't know what to compare it to but there's just like that that aspect of this that makes me think of like fighting some bald dudes in a parking lot <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, like, I, I guess I mean that might come be coming from the. And when we say when I'm saying there's lots of Iron Maiden here, I want to be specific. It's the Diano era Maiden that yeah. really comes through, and that could be where you're hearing it because the Diano era Maiden like definitely was bar was was pulling on that punk rock energy that was going on in England at that time. So that might be part of where it comes from. But you're right, there is like a, definitely a youthful punk, almost hardcore energy to this whole thing, especially the, like yeah, the way the vocals. Uh, are kind of just shouted. But shall we dive right in? Let's do it. All right. So kicking off this one is the track Evil Eye. Um, and this one kick comes in right away with some dueling guitar harmonies. Like, and we go, we're, we're in maiden land right away. Mm -hmm. um, the riffing, you know, kind of varies up a lot during this one. They go from gallops to like some more down pick chuggy stuff. Um, I and I, I I already liked this bass player a lot as soon as I heard this mm -hmm. because uh, he does I mean this is gonna sound weird but he does a lot of things that I would do um, when when it comes to like act stance and things on if I was playing along to this track I'm like I would do that absolutely like that's the thing I would do there 
because that's what this song needs. Um, he's very, he's very, he's very talented, um, but he's also like pretty reserved at times. He knows where to throw a little run or an accent, but he also knows when he's got to lock in with the drums or ape the guitars and lock in. He services every song uh, really well. So this is this is kind of honestly since the whole time you recorded this is probably the first time that i was like man i really like everything this guy does mm -hmm. so that was very cool um the vocals you know they're, they're not like virtuosic but you know they suit the song um they, like, as we talked on earlier they're kind of more shouted than sung um more than anything um but they they work they complement the music um the lyrics are fun um there's an awesome chorus in this song that's really, really catchy. Mm -hmm. The only thing I found in this one, and I kind of found it a, a couple times, is possibly, I don't know whether they recorded to a click or not. They either did and it was tough to move with it or they didn't. But some of the transitions were a bit janky. Um, you know, they just kind of weren't as tight as I thought they maybe needed to be. But overall, the song rules. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I noticed... I mean, yeah, the guitar, the dueling guitars, you know, you kind of that establishes like, okay, we're in a classic metal space because there's guitar harmonies. Um, and then just the sound of the drums is really the first thing that grabbed me because it's very present. I really love the, you know, when, when, the, when the drums are recorded in such a way that you kind of feel like you're in the room with them and that, that sense of the snare just being right there and just popping you right in the chest. I really like that feeling. Um, you almost can't overdo that short of Saint Anger for me. Um, I just really... <laughs> yeah. um, and it's, you know, it makes me flash on, like, production-wise, like, it's not the style of playing, but, like, that's what I love about Vinny Apathy, for example, and, like, Dio albums, is that, that real just clarity of, like, where is the beat? Oh, it's when this, it's the snare. It's right there. You can feel it when you're listening to it. You're never too mm -hmm. far away from what the drums are doing. Um... I really like that, on the drums especially, but for all the instruments, just the production is clear. You can hear the performances really well. They're yeah. not hiding. It's, it's, a, it's fairly exposed, and what they're playing is not complicated, but you can hear that the musicianship is really solid there. Um, again, especially on the drums. And I really like just how it seems to be built on that foundation of a good drum tone. And mm -hmm. that's, like, that's the foundation of your, of your sound, right? And I, I really feel like they put the work into making sure that that sounds great. Yeah. Um, the vocals are not like technically astonishing or anything, but they get the job done. Um, they're they're well delivered. They're, I can understand the lyrics. Uh, they're on pitch. It's uh, not overproduced. There's some reverb on it, but it's not. I don't feel like it's been altered too much. It does firmly establish this as like an underground record. Yeah, it, it on an unapologetic way. Yeah, it doesn't sound like mega mega pro or anything like that. You know, it's not like it's not a big budget production, but it, it does the job. Yeah, and it and it, and it services the music and what they're doing really well. I think. Yeah, there's not there's not a lot of fat here, uh, in in any in any sense. Um, so yeah, first track's great. Um, although I have to say, like, it really kicks off for me that the second track really amped it up a little bit, and that that's when it really grabbed me. Ritual? The second track, Ritual, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, this one comes off, I'm, I already liked it because his, his wicked bass intro that kind of starts it off. And, you know, it goes right into some serious galloping. But I like how um, the main riff is kind of played in a couple different iterations. 
Um, mm -hmm. It's the same kind of riff. They just kind of change up how it's picked or, or how, how much, what kind of chords they use. Um, so I, I definitely like, I, I love that. Um, this is the first, this solo rules. Like yeah, the guitar does. solo <laughs> in this song. There's a lot of what I call, you know, and you've heard me say it in practice and, and it, one of Nate's favorite things that I talk about in my weird way of talking about songwriting is there's lots of tactics in this yeah. song, meaning there's a lot of like things he does in his solo that aren't really guitar playing. You know, like <laughs> he's like playing with the toggle switch or, you know, making like certain weird, weird sounds come through that's just really cool, like rocking out and you don't, um, you don't um, hear a lot of players do this anymore. Um, it's kind of like why on our EP Steelbound when Jesse recorded that solo, he had a couple more that were way more musical, but I was like, no, 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 that one. Cause it's just lots of obnoxious shit on it. And this solo grabs me in the same way. Like it has lots of attitude and it has lots of, you know, just, it's just some dude like, you know, having fun and rocking out hard on his guitar. Um, the outro has like a really cool half, half paced kind of shift that goes on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, knowing Eddie, as long as I have, that's, that was him that had that idea. I guarantee. Mm -hmm. Like that's just, that's the, those are the things he does that are these little subtle tempo shifts and whatever that had lots of groove to it. And that was one of the fun things of writing music with him. But yeah, ritual does kick ass. Yeah. I think that guitar solo is, it's like, it's like the rest of the album. It's not overcomplicated. Like I can hear pretty much everything he's doing and it's, it's easy to, grasp you know it's some fairly simple hammer on pull off kind of stuff but it's got attitude and there's a lot of focus on tone mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of focus on tone as an expressive tool and i think that's some of what you're talking about too with like playing with the settings and just playing with the sound of the guitar um in addition to just it's not just the notes he's playing it's actually just like using that the the, the sound profile and the tone profile as the thing that's displaying the attitude and, and the emotion is living in the tone. And I do like that. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. But this was, yeah, this was a great, this, this, this was a great tune. And I think that's probably my favorite solo on the record, but all, a lot of the lead breaks on this album are fantastic. Um, really, really big fan of this guitar, this lead guitar player. Um, he does it. He, he just puts a lot of style into his solos. Like you said, he's not reinventing the wheel or he's not playing, things that are necessarily overly complicated or technically super impressive, but he's got, he's got, he's got lots of feel and, and, and does lots of cool shit that really, you know, makes it unique. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's not, like, there's even a couple points where it almost starts getting off of, you know, <laughs> a little bit off of where everybody else is, but like it's in a way that really captures a lot of energy and like, for me, at least, the reaction I feel, you know, physically is just to get stoked. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, there, there are, like I said, there are some, like, you know, you, you have a very kind of live-sounding record, so there are some parts that are a little iffy, like, as far as, like, cohesion goes, and there's some parts that kind of go off the rails. But, you know, you, you kind of got to make a decision, you know, when you're doing, when you're recording an album, you're either going to go for something that sounds live and kind of has a lot of energy and, you know, has tempo shifts or you're going to click everything in and lock it in and make it super technically you know on on point so these guys have clearly gone with the former um and that's fine 
by me. You know, I, there are some parts that you, if you want to get really dive in technically and going, oh, that transition goes off time a little bit. You can listen to our record and the tempo shifts because we didn't use sure. clicks either. But, you know, that's, to me, that's normal. That's the way a band plays. And that's the way I like to hear it a lot of times on an album. So, yeah, I, 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 I can look past all those things just because the energy is so good and it fuels you're getting stoked so well. Yeah, if you're if you're digging too deep and and trying to like pick apart every little bit, then you're clearly missing the point. That's of, not the yeah. That's, that's not, not the point of this podcast. We're we're right. speaking about this, you know, both as artists and musicians, but also as fans. You know, listening. Do I enjoy this record? The answer is hell yeah. Um, so for good, we can go on to Summoner. Yeah. Um, this is the first time I really really heard Deano era Maiden, and I'm yeah. good with that because that's my favorite era of Iron Maiden. Uh, I like that. They let the bass player introduce the melody on this track, um, and that was really cool. Um, the one thing that, if I had a criticism of this song, is that the, you know the vocal melody is pretty similar to the first two songs. Like it's getting a bit repetitive at this point, but it's still good. Um, the pre-chorus rules in this song, I really liked it. Um, I probably didn't. I probably didn't like this uh, track as much as the first two, um, but it rocks proud and true all the same. Um, Again, there's some great lead breaks and great solos in this one. Uh, but this one really, really, really digs into that Deano era Maiden stuff. There's a little bit of borrowing of, of ideas here from that era, but it's not done in a blatantly terrible way. Uh, get another strong, fun track here. Yeah, I mean, I actually think this, this one, at least certainly on the first couple of listens, um, it's probably my favorite track, or at least the one that stood out the most. And some of that is just, it's got this really simple and really catchy chorus. Mm. Um, like you said, the pre-chorus is great, and then the chorus is just, you know, there's not a lot to it, but you start hearing some really well-executed harmonies. Not complicated harmonies, but like very clean, very crisp, in tune, fun to sing along with, yeah. um, easy to call to mind. Like, it's... I actually really like this one. I, I like the, the bass introducing the melody. Like that, it, that makes me think of you know, hardcore and punk too. Like the intro kind of fades away, and then the bass basses comes in, starts introducing something. I just feel like the pit's about to open up when I hear that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> it's dynamics. You know, it's like it's not just hammering on the riff over and over again. You know, you're trying to it's, you're telling a story through the music. Yeah, and you know, for a vocal style that's pretty raw and you know, at times in this album, you know, that the style is kind of melody optional, but I really like how clear and well executed the harmonies are, and it kind of contrasts with that and helps bring it up to this other level of like um, technical proficiency singing wise, and it just adds that. It helps elevate it out of the garage a little bit to have vocal harmonies that sound so clear. Um, I'm, that part really made me happy on this track. Yeah, and I think, and I think there's some a point that you're making here that's really important. I mean, you know, you're much more critical of vocals than I am, and you know, you said, hey, like this isn't the most super technically precise or um, amazing vocal performance ever, but it's serviceable. It's on key. Uh, it's in pitch. The harmony is in the right key. It's the right notes, and it just shows you that that if to for a album to be successful, um, that's much more important than people who are who have lots of range, who can do lots of dynamic things, and it's not in the right key, and you know that just sucks because that just sounds like shit. So it's it's better to 
here, here we, I think here we have a case of a singer who's doing, he's more focused on using what he's got uh, and using it well than he is with doing things that would be considered super virtuosic. Like, oh, look at me, I'm the star. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very, I mean, you can tell that this is a vocalist who's also an instrumentalist in the band. That's, it's, yes. It's very inherent in the style. Um, but there's something that is, I don't know, I like that. You know, I, I think if this guy were just singing, if that were his only job, I might be a little concerned. But, like, it's clearly not that style. It's like the band, the instrumental stuff is the foundation, and the vocals are a communicative tool on top of that. Um, yeah. While the guitarist who sings, I don't remember, I don't know the, these guys' names, but I did look it up, and it's the guitarist who sings, while he's involved in doing all this other stuff that makes the sound work. Uh, and the other thing about these vocals uh, throughout the album is the diction's pretty good. You can you can understand the lyrics and yeah. um, and the lyrics also not complicated and fairly familiar uh, subject matter if you're into heavy metal. Yeah. But uh, but it comes across. You don't need to go digging into the lyrics sheet. And, and some of these, you know, again, like me as kind of a prog fan, I can go either way on this. But like, if you're singing about like, you know, we trekked across the universe and visited the ancient cube of solar wisdom and like learned the prophecy <laughs> that we rode forth into the stars of night like if your lyrics are like that and you don't have good diction i just have no clue what's going on this yeah. is kind of the opposite like i know exactly what's going on i know exactly what these songs are about and it might not be like you know epic poetry but it doesn't have to be and they're using the tools they have to craft something that really works so yeah, I agree. And I think that diction is a thing that is underrated. And I think it's something that most people don't outrightly notice, but it's, I think it's more of a subliminal thing that sometimes if people don't like a singer, that's a reason why. And they don't really realize that that's a reason right. why it's because, it, you know, you're using linguistics as a, as an instrument. And, you know, if you're not effectively communicating what you're saying, it's, it's not as effective when it comes across to the listener. Yeah. Like if I 100% need a lyric sheet to understand any fucking thing on the song, then that is probably an issue. Yeah. And that's, you know, and I'm not a Motley Crue fan, but I did kind of appreciate Nikki Six taking the piss out of yeah, Eddie yeah, Better yeah. a little bit for being... No, no to be fair, yeah. Vince Neil sings in his bands. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, you know, and, and Vince Neil is a much better singer on the albums than he is live. We all have heard, right, right. you know, Chug a Bee song version <laughs> of, um, you know, Kickstart My Heart, which is one of the funniest things that ever existed. But anyway, well, it's not about Nikki Six, it's about Maul. And yep. moving forward, we get the ubiquitous title track. We yep. got Maul. And every time I see a band with a title track, I'm like, okay, this is either... this. Look, a lot of times it's the most forgettable song on the record. <laughs> you yeah. know, like honestly, like there's not a lot of bands who have done the whole title track thing well. Iron Maiden did it really well. Black Sabbath did it really well. I Give the Devil His Due. Iced Earth did it really well. Um, so, but there's a lot of them, especially recently when I, I've always hesitated for us, especially to have a, 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 a self-titled song because it's, you know, it's, I, I find like, I don't know. They 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 could be they get really forget forgettable. So I'm like, all right, well, let's see how this goes. But this song actually is really cool. Um, you get another dual guitar harmony coming in for the intro. This song actually was the one that really reminded me of Three Inches of Blood, mm. um, mostly because of the subtle gang vocals that are going on during a lot of this that are really really cool. Um, 
it's a fast ripper of a song, but it manages to stay melodic, which is kind of a strength of this band um, through, through a lot of these songs. Um, and then halfway, we get the first kind of like, and I hate to use this word, but I don't know another word for it, the first breakdown, for lack of a better term, that happens <laughs> around the halfway point, and it just kills. Like, it's super, super heavy, um, and it's really catchy, and it's really awesome. Um, you know, there's a great solo after that with some total, like, Steve Harris, like, early Steve Harris bass lines underneath it. Just, like, lots of really bouncy stuff all over the fretboard you know, playing around with different scales and stuff underneath it. It's a little bit jazzy. Um, yeah, boy, I gotta, I gotta say, like, I was skeptical when I saw the title track, but this song rules. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the, I think it's one of the strongest songs in the album. It's got a super catchy chorus. I love the gang vocals. You know I love gang vocals. Yeah. Um, and the way they're, I really like the way it's employed where there's this, like, call and response thing in the chorus, and then you get in the outro those same words, you know, the chorus goes, now go, go, fight, fight, kill, kill, die, die tonight. And at the end, you just get, go, fight, kill, die, go, fight, kill, die. Oh, it's, it's just really uh, <laughs> catchy and fun, and it'll be a lot of fun to see the song live, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a lot of the time when bands do an eponymous track, they try to, like, make it more epic, and that's often what it doesn't work is when, it like, they slow everything down and try to be like, this is our song about our band. And it's really slow and like, yeah, yeah, extra epic. But this goes the other way. They just turn it up faster and turn up the aggression on it and make a hard-hitting song um, that would be, I'm sure, easy to stick into any set list. I, it's, it's smart in that way. I really like that if this is their manifest, because I think if you do a self-titled song, it's kind of ought to be some kind of manifesto of what your band is about. Agreed, agreed. And uh, and this actually seems to fit that bill really well. You know, if you're going to do Mall from Mall by Mall, like, <laughs> that's choice. right. That's right. It's <laughs> it's the song from the uh, from the album from the band. Yeah. Uh, so it's like kind of like the Bad Company one. It's like Bad right. Company by Bad Company on the album Bad Company. So they pulled off the triple eponymous title. So. Yeah, mad props on this one. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's all I need to say about it. It's just a badass tune. Um, next up is um, Red Sonia, I think is next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so is she like the female counterpart to Conan or something? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, she's like another character from that Robert E. Howard mm, uh, Samaria mythos. Yeah. And there so was a movie from the 80s that was, like, simultaneously really terrible and really awesome called Red Sonja. Yeah, all right. I haven't seen that. I'll have to check it out. Oh, it's we like, should watch it. Yeah. It'll probably give us some good ideas for lyrics. Yeah, man. Well, you know I love that stuff. So I, I, I actually haven't seen that yet. Um, so this, yeah. So it's cool to hear a song about that. Um, there's some really uh, frantic riffing in this one. Not in the Metallica sense. Just, like, actually, like, you know, kind of frantic, frenetic riffing in this one. Um, I really love the, again, there's a big big i'm not gonna call it a breakdown it's like a big riff part around minute 40 mm -hmm. um which um you know it really like is a cool way to like slow things down and it really transitions well into a solo um and this is something you know i've done this on records with eddie that i've played on before so i don't know if this was his idea or, or whatnot but we've definitely employed this tactic before and it, it's very um uh very effective i think um this is uh this wasn't my favorite on the album. Um I, I liked it okay, but I wasn't like doing backflips over it, but it's still a very cool track. 
Yeah, it, it definitely it, it works, gets the job done. I, I do feel like, yeah, after the first four tracks I felt were really strong, and then I felt like there was a little bit of a dip with the next couple, but I'm not sure if that has to do with the actual quality of the tunes or if it was just, you know, my ear had kind of gotten used to the formula by that point. So one thing I didn't do that, you know, maybe next time I listen to this album, I might just start on this track and see how this one and the next track sound when my ears are fresh. Yeah, so I did, I did break that too. At this point, I kind of had an opposite experience. I was, and I think that's probably true for me on this song, I was a little fatigued um, made, uh, with, with the formulas and, you know, the, the vocal, the pacing was very similar to all these songs. Um, the vocals are a lot of times, especially in the verses, have similar cadences and stuff that they use. Um, and I, my ears were getting a little fatigued. But the next track, Sword Woman, actually helped me snap out of that because mm -hmm. of the mainly just because all, all it was was the, the slower intro. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a slower, almost do doomier intro, which was welcome. Um, again, I didn't think this was one of the stronger ones on the album either, but it, this is definitely back to the, after the slower intro. Um, we go back to some more Deanna era, Deanna era maiden kind of riffage. Um, there's a three inches of blood vibe to this. And they even say the words yeah. fire up the blades, which is a, a title of an album by Three Inches of Blood. So it might be a little tongue in cheek tribute there. I don't know. Uh, but it's, def it's definitely that lyric is in there. Um, so that kind of made my ears perk up. It's a fun song. Um, the lyrics just seem to be about like some sword lady fucking shit up. <laughs> just yeah. what it seems to be. Um, we get another big ass groove part at 210, which was cool. I mean, it's simple and effective, um, but yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, it, it, it was it was a cool track, but it wasn't one of the best ones on the album, I agree with that. Yeah, it's got some fun stuff on it. I mean, the verses definitely uh, take it even farther than we've been before in the melody optional kind of direction, and the singer on these verses is almost reminds me of like a hip-hop delivery at times, because it's like, it's kind of spoken, yelled, mm -hmm. Enemies fall as she slashes and thrashes. It's not even, there's not really a melody there. He's just kind of saying the word, but it, it's cool. And it is a little bit different from what they have done in the previous songs. And uh, that made it stand out to me a little bit. I'm like, oh yeah, this is the one with like the more spoken, you know, you know, one step in the direction of Rage Against the Machine versus. <laughs> well, there was, yeah. And I, and I just liked that. I was worried after I heard Red Sonja, I was like, I was really into the album. And then I heard that one. Another, again, not shitting on that track, but my ears were getting tired and I was kind of like, man, I really hope this isn't kind of like everybody polka for the rest of the, for rest of the songs. It's just right. going to be all the same all the way through because that was going to... When that's happened to us in the past, reviewing these albums, um, that's what kind of wears me out a little bit. And I start to get kind of annoyed that I'm still listening to this album and they're just kind of doing the same shit. It's like, why didn't you make... Why didn't you just make a fucking EP? Right. You know? But it's... Um, it's... Uh, no, but it, it, it varied up. Even though I don't did think it was the strongest track on the record, um, it definitely like shows that there's some variety, and we are going to get some more variety going forward. So yeah, I think the the next track, Father Time, is definitely a, it's a standout for me. This one. I agree, I agree, and yeah, because it was just different. You know, they they start playing with some different ideas. Um, this night it starts with a nice like syncopated riff for the intro like it's everything is really matching the drums everyone's kind of locking in with the drummer at the beginning um and then we get a, a different time signature for possibly the first time if there was any 
off time signatures. They were subtle and brief on the first songs. I didn't notice them, but you know, we get kind of a six, eight halftime swing feel on this one. Yeah. It's, it's cool. Cause we were talking just the other night about, you know, how you can four, four and six, eight and how you can um, fit those together. And this song is definitely the most adventurous yet in terms of exploring different time signatures. And uh, I really liked the way they transition from that intro in simple time into the complex time six eight it's actually a really fun like a little bit of an unexpected transition because the guitar takes it up but for me at least my ear at first was like wait where are we time signature wise and then the drum fill that leads into it uh into the six eight groove was kind of unexpected and then once you feel the six eight it's exciting i i really liked the way they did that um, yeah well that's another thing Eddie's good at he loves numbers and he loves counting you know different time signatures certain ways he's like big into that mathy part of of drumming so that that definitely explains why there's a cool transition. Um, yeah, I thought it was. It's a good like form content match too. The song's called Father Time, and you're playing with these different time signatures. True. true. And there's like you, you get into these slower sections that are in two or four, and then shifting back and forth between those. And then the way they handle those transitions just like accentuates the musicianship of everybody in the band. It's not it's not drawing too much attention to it. Like it, it's really only through active listening that I was noticing. Like all right. Here's where they're shifting back and forth, and they're doing it really well, not drawing attention to it. It's not overly complicated, but it's not easy to pull off those kinds of shifts back and forth without it being jarring. Yeah, I agree. Um, so it, as well, like the, the, the pre-chorus struck me again here because it has like this cool, creepy, like super processed vocal effect on it, which yeah. was kind of cheesy, but I loved it. Um, and then this is big kind of doomy chorus, and this is where we kind of hear some of like the that real like doom kind of influence come in for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and then if, if, around the four minute, 30 second mark, there's this cool like chugging riff, creepy thing that happens. I don't really know how to describe it. Um, just go listen to it. Um, so this, in some ways, this is like this, one of the, this is the strongest song on the record in some ways, especially when it comes to dynamics and experimentation and them trying different things. Yeah, definitely. I think is, is the track that most shows what they, might be capable of in some of the directions they might go as they expand, you know, in future albums if they want to get more adventurous and start uh, putting together more complex compositions. Like this is a, a kind of a sign of how they might do some stuff that's more interesting and breaks out of the formula that we heard on the first few tracks. Yeah, I agree. So I, I really like. I thought this was this was one of my favorites. Um, I thought you know, especially from like any kind of technical standpoint, I think it's one of it's possibly the strongest one. Agreed. Yeah. All right. So next we launch into March of the Dead. And it's always like that song that's the second last one. And I always go, this is, is this the song they're kind of hiding for filler? But not really. Um, it's another swingy, like, I think it has a 6 8 vibe to it. Yeah. This, yeah, one's, this one's all in 6 8. Pretty yeah. Much and it's a little like, I don't know. If there's a critique to it, it's a little kind of straightforward. Um, like, you know, it, it's, it's just kind of like, it could have used maybe some different dynamics and some feels but there's a enough nuanced cool shit going on and it doesn't stick around too long that it didn't become a problem for me listening to it. yeah i mean it, it didn't do as much for me as some of the other tracks uh i felt a little i felt like the placement issue i mean i can see why they put it here but i did think it's a little strange like i don't know when you have a a, a couple tracks that have a distinctive feature whether that's a particular key or a time signature. In this case, like the two songs that are using six eight are back to back on the album. 
Yeah, and that's I, I noticed that too. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I don't consider that the best move because it it doesn't that that makes this one stand out a little bit less. I feel like it might have been worth putting this one maybe even a little earlier, uh, which might have helped it stand out a little bit more. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's a cool track. Lyrically, it's a Lord of the Rings song. Mm-hmm. We've got Aragorn um, going to get the Army of the Dead. Um, but it's well handled, and it's subtle. You don't need to know Tolkien to appreciate the song. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's uh, it got a little bit of a Manowar feel from this one. Maybe it's just because, you know, like we were talking about the other night, Manowar, like the Kings of 6-8. Yeah, we were blasting. We blasted battle hymns at least once. So yeah. it might have been more than once as the night wore on. But yeah, it's. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's not a standout track, but it's there's nothing wrong with it. Um, the play, yeah, placement's a little odd. But I keep like, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's it's it, it's it's hard to say. Maybe this one and Red Sonia could have switched spots. You know? Yeah, I think that might have that might have made both of those songs stand out a little bit more. Yeah, and I think some bands really try. And I'm not saying that's the case here, but I think some bands really try to front load albums. Um, but, you know, you, you, the back half of the album is just as important. I think people are really after, like, albums with depth these days, especially the people who are going to buy your vinyl. They want to hear how it flows front to back. So, you know, the idea of hiding songs second last, and I mean, I'm not saying we are guilty of it once or twice, but, right. you know, um, it's uh, it kind of was like, I was like, is this the, is this the one that's kind of, just stuck there because I didn't know where else to put it. And I kind of get that vibe, but it still is a cool track. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be careful with that stuff though, especially if you're doing vinyl, because like if I'm putting on a record like this and if I'm drunk, I might not know which one side A is. It might That's just which side comes out of the sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the most, I mean, usually when I'm spinning vinyl is usually when I'm, you know, I usually got some whiskey or some beer on hand when I'm spinning vinyl. So, uh, cause the toast go things go hand in hand. Um, Speaking of, I hope they get this record on vinyl one day. Oh, yeah. So then we get to the last one of, 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 of the album, which is We Ride, which is by far the long, not by far, but I guess it's definitely the longest song on, on the album. Mm. And it definitely is the one with the most epic feel to it, I think. Yeah, it makes sense as the last track. It's actually, I'm looking at it here, it's actually 10 seconds shorter than Father Time. Okay, well, there but you go. But still, so. all, one of the longer tracks. Yeah. It felt like it, it felt longer to me. I'm not saying that in a bad way. It just, you know, there's more of a definitive, this song has a definitive like first half and second half. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's a, the one I get, if I get to have a gripe and it's just it's like, this is a, a me thing. It's an, another, another fucking metal song with a motorcycle revving to start it. Like, can we just stop that? in 2022 like I mean, how many <laughs> how many hundred songs are there with a fucking motorcycle sample at the beginning like i just it doesn't yeah. it, it doesn't need to be done anymore yeah and it doesn't actually seem to fit with the content of the lyrics which seem to be more still medieval like they're talking about the reins and satanic steeds and it seems yeah. like we're talking about horses and maybe magic evil horses but uh and also just the transition between a song about lord of the rings into a motorcycle sound effect. I mean, that's a very heavy metal <laughs> thing to do. And and it's funny, though, because at first I was like, hmm, maybe I should say something about that from a critique point of view. Like, well, if we're in Middle Earth, like, do I really want to start thinking about motorcycles all of a sudden? But then I realized that the first Greyhawk record, uh, which has some 
pronounced Lord of the Rings influences also has a motorcycle on the cover, so I probably yeah, would yeah. be hypocritical to try to call that a, a downside. I, you know? I'm all for mixing different realms and different yeah. things. It's just like I've heard. I, I I remember thinking off the top of my head when I heard this. I counted ten songs that I know just yeah. off the top of my head that have motorcycle intros, and I'm like, what? Whatever. I'm not gonna. That's not. That shouldn't be my focus. But I'm just like, you know, certain certain things like like. Certain song titles and certain sound bites and samples just, I mean, samples are cool, but certain, certain ones just, they, we don't need to do them anymore. Bands have been doing it since the, since the 80s. Like, I don't need to hear another song called Cyanide ever again. Like, just en enough or, with the songs titled Cyanide. And, or Valhalla. Know, or Valhalla. There's enough. Like, it's enough. I mean, we don't need any more remedial uh, courses in Viking history, you know, right. or Viking <laughs> mythology. Like, we, we just, we can, we can just, you can still write about Viking shit. You can still write about motorcycles and stuff. Just and Lord of the Rings. Just do it in your own way, you know. And just the whole rum, 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 the beginning of the song. I'm like, eh, okay. But anyway, um, this one I really like the song overall. The motorcycle intro aside, um, there's some Thin Lizzy vibes going on here. I mm. thought at, at times uh, got a little swingy, but like an early Maiden. Um, the first half of that is kind of kind of follows that kind of vibe. They got like this. Thin Lizzy, you know, dual guitar harmony thing going on. Um, then halfway through, about about a little past halfway through, I guess, a three-minute mark, the tempo of the vibe changes, and we get this, like, stoner doom riff that kind of comes out of left field. Like, I got stoked. This riff, if, if this riff was pre presented in mine and Ed's old stoner band, 80 Mile Trip, this would have paid it on a record. It's a badass riff. And then we get the whole, like, Tom Warrior ooh, kind of thing and then oh, yeah. it all kicks in and I'm just like all I could all I could say all I could see in my head was like a whole venue just like deeply headbanging to this riff like you know people just throwing hair everywhere um, they kind of ride this riff out right to the end you know they don't really change it they throw little dynamic shifts and solos and different things over it but they kind of just get on that that you know, that horse or that motorcycle and they just ride this riff all the way to the end. And it's a great way to close the record. It is, yeah. When I first listened to it, I was like, you know, halfway through the song, I was like, why did they choose this one as the last song? And then that riff kicks in and it, you know, turns into this epic outro. I'm like, oh, that's why. Good yeah, and that's, and that's, that's definitely, <laughs> I guarantee you this is the live closer too because you can really, it leaves an open-ended um, outro to a live set. You could do a lot of experimenting and you could throw a lot of like, different shit in there to like really have a cool way to end your set off. So part of me thinks this is probably the closing song live as well. Yeah. I mean, I hope we get to play with live with these guys sometimes, or at least see them. Like that's one thing I'm really looking forward to with COVID stuff coming to an end is I, I fucking miss Canada. It's one of my favorite things about yeah, going yeah. on tour is going up there. And like, it's just, it's so fun. The, the scene up there and there's so many cool people. And I just really miss it. It's been like, you know, over two, two years, years man yeah last february february 2020 was the last time we got up there to play some shows on the island with gatekeeper and then we played uh the ross the boss deal in vancouver so yeah i, I miss i mean it's my fucking hometown man i miss it and yeah it's a, a lot of fun i mean there's a lot of bands there's a lot of great bands up there and it's really nice to see there's a lot of great bands up there but there's kind of an attitude in like the vancouver area and, and stuff that's it's very like you feel isolated up there, at least I did, because it's really difficult to to tour. It's really difficult. Like the first, you either have to get on a ferry and go to Victoria, which is super expensive, 
the next, and then you got the middle of BC where there's some cool spots to hit in the middle of BC, but it's small, they're far away and they're small. And the next major city in Canada is 13 hours east. And we get to Calgary and, and Edmonton. And if you want to come down to Washington and stuff and play, your visa is like 450 bucks per band member. You know, it's very expensive. So, I mean, I think there's a real sense of isolation there. So there's a lot of great bands that kind of don't ever see the bigger picture past the, the city of Vancouver. So they don't really reach out and try to get label attention. They don't really shop themselves and they kind of sell themselves short. And it's, I'm really glad these guys didn't do that. Um, and then I'm really glad that these guys, rather than just self-releasing this thing to their friends on Facebook and having a local CD release party and then doing nothing with it, I'm glad that they kind of put themselves out there a bit and found a great label in Gates of Hell slash Cruz del Sur, which is going to put a lot of great, they're an awesome label. They're going to put a lot of great support behind it. So I'm really happy to see that a band from back home managed to, to figure that out. And hopefully it means they're going to get the hell outside of their hometown and get, get to go do some cool stuff when and, and if that time comes. Yeah, I hope so. Because a band like this with that raw energy, I mean, I think they're larger. I mean, this album's so much fun. They did a great job. But I think broader success is probably going to hang on their live performance because it certainly sounds from the record like this is a band that everybody's going to want to see live and experience that energy in person. Sure. Yeah, they could. I mean, they definitely would do great in Europe. Um, they would do great down here even. So hopefully, you know, there's going to be some opportunities for them to do that. But, you know, that having a, a great label that's based out of Europe will give them a lot more exposure outside of Vancouver. And Vancouver is very much a death metal town. You know, it's a de it, it very much is like that, even though you get, you know, kind of like the more well-known bands that come out of there, all like power metal and trad bands, like Three Inches of Blood and, and Unleash the Archers are probably like, probably the two best known metal bands that come out of that city in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And, but the hometown crowd there is kind of all about, you know, their, their death and their doom. And I don't know, maybe it's the whole gloomy Pacific Northwest. Oh, right. You know, we kind of have that going on here in Seattle too, where, you know, even really, really crappy doom shows can get a lot of people. I mean, I've gone to a lot of doom shows in the city and I'm not trying to bag on anybody, but there's some pretty derpy ass like beardo doom bands around here that pack in tons of people and I don't fucking get it. But you know, it's just maybe it's just the atmosphere, the atmosphere around here. But anyway, uh, yeah, the new album, self-titled from Mall, gets a strong, hearty recommendation from me. Um, I think we have a really, really solid debut from a band with a ton of potential that I hope can stand the test of time and stay together and keep going and you know, put up, put out some more music and get out of their hometown and play some more shows. I'm really happy that this is the first time I reviewed a band on this podcast with like someone in it who's like a really, really, really close friend of mine. And I'm glad that I liked it because I was scared that I wouldn't. Um, if I really hated it, I probably would have said, we got to pull a shoot and not do this one because I'm not going to get on the internet and talk shit about my friend's band. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, solid thumbs up recommendation from me, self-titled album by Maul. Go get it. Get in your collection. Yeah, same, same here, man. Like this is it's good stuff. It's like musical espresso. It'll get you hyped. It's it's lean and mean. It's a lot of fun. My compliments to your buddy on his drumming because that's you know he's the MVP of this record for me. It's 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 not flashy, but it's effective. And if you like, I mean, if you don't like the sound of like 
people hitting objects with sticks really hard. Like, why do you listen to heavy metal? So it's 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 what it needs to be. It's, it's a stuff. great rhythm section. It, yeah. it is. And it's, I'm I'm happy that he found a really great bass player to play with. Um, guitar, you know, vocalist slash rhythm guitarist, not to be outdone. You know, he did a great job himself. Lead guitars were awesome as well. So we got a really really solid lineup here. And like I said, hopefully they can stick it out and make it through the other end of this fucking bullshit and 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 do some more things because i would really love to see that and we need more of, the, of these trad bands around this area so you make a nice little scene coming up here in the you know in the bc to oregon area oh yeah cascadia kills <laughs> <laughs> all right well i think that just about wraps it up for this week uh or this i mean, should say this week this episode of keepers of the flame we're not really keep into weekly things anymore because that felt like a job and it was kind of a pain in the ass sometimes. <laughs> so we're kind of just doing, we're going to keep doing this regularly, but we're going to kind of do it when we're good and ready. Um, but rest so, assured, it won't be too long. No, no, we're always, this. as soon as we hang up here, we're going to be trying to find another record to get in our ear holes and review. Um, so again, thank you everybody for listening. Once again, if you have any recommendations for us, please send it our way um, because we will definitely consider all options um, and, see what we're going to talk about but anyway um everybody keep your heads up out there keep your sticks on the ice and uh until next time you know take care of yourselves and we will see you when we see you again all right <laughs>